Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Full Change with Tom Laidlaw. Right, Tom, we've had a lot of legends on this program so far, and once you hear this voice, our audience will know who it is. We have a Hall of Famer, yeah. the voice of the New York Rangers. We have the great Sam Rosen. Yeah, yeah we should not have said his name just to see if people can recognize him. That's true. Yeah. Well, they'll read the headline in the uh, in the episode. So oh, that's who it is. Sam, thank you very much for being on the show. Seriously, but man, uh, I think I can speak for Tom. Uh, we respect you a ton. Not only at Tom, but I was with you at an event recently. It's not just how well you do your job, but it's the way you treat people, too. You're a total, total gentleman. You're very proud of yourself. You're a great man. Thanks, Tommy. That's a nice introduction. Well, that's the last, and, nice thing, uh, last nice thing I'm going to say about it. We could have played Can You Get? Can you Guess This with the Dark Street or something like that. Yeah. But, um, no, you, you know, it's something that I think starts from childhood, and you know that, uh, growing up. You you learn from your parents uh, how to treat people, and uh, I've always felt, no matter who it is, that when I walk into Madison Square Garden, I say hello to every security person, every usher, um, you know, people at the at the food stands. I mean, they're they're great people. They have great you know they have lives of their own that they're living. Who knows? But the bottom line is. Uh, we're we're together, and uh, you know I'm living a great life, and I want people to know that I'm happy to be there and happy to see them. Yeah, we were at the Sam and I were at this event they called the Superstars. So is it MSG is that was called Superstars. So I guess MSG has this fantastic program where they pick out certain employees uh, like every six months, and then they, they whittle it down after a year, then then after three years they have the Superstars. So this is the event that Sam and I were at. And uh, yeah, you were saying you, the MC, got up there and made people really feel comfortable. And it was it was fun. Event. It was good. You know, it's a great thing for a company to do. Um, I know at Madison Square Garden, uh, they have what they call their their Legends Night, and they honor people who have been there twenty five years and more. I mean, there there have been people that have been working there for over fifty years, right. and. Wow. It's it's a special night. They bring their families. They're treated to a nice dinner, and they're called up. Their names are called up, and they're given something to commemorate the time that they've uh, they've worked there. And I think 
It's a great thing for a company to do. Yeah. And then the event that we were at, as you said, is even bigger because it takes in all the different venues that Madison Square Garden incorporates, Radio City, Chicago Theater, the Beacon Theater. Um, it's it's something that's really uh, a nice way to tell people we care about you. Yeah, it is. You know, it's funny. They have a great time, those people, the, the employees that come to those events that are honored. And they're having fun, too. They're all dressed up, the dresses on, suits on, anything like that. And they're having a few cocktails. They're having some fun, too. So it's a, it's a good night. At the Rainbow Room, what a view. Got yes. A view of the, the city. The only bathroom I've ever been in that has a view of Central Park. <laughs> Seriously, I, I'm washing my hands. I did wash my hands. And I'm looking out, and the guy walked by and said, that's Central Park. Yeah, it is. And you see Yankee Stage. As long as there weren't people in the park looking up at you for binoculars. They need some power, powerful binoculars, Sam. <laughs> powerful. Powerful. So what, well, like you said, Tom, less, uh, recently Sam and I were at the Hockey in Harlem dinner, and what a great fundraiser that was. Sam was the auctioneer, and it's just a great event put on by Todd Levy and Malik and the Jacobs family. And it's uh, Sam was auctioning off. He's getting uh, John Ledecky to, to buy some vacations. And, uh, yeah. Get, yeah, take all his money so he can't spend it on the players. Uh, very nice man who was very generous, and uh, I, I think the the thing that he pointed out, which is very, very important, is that all three hockey teams plus the NHL uh, support the Ice Hockey in Harlem program, and it really helps. It's helped a lot of kids. That You mentioned Malik, Tom. Uh, Malik showed me a picture of him in front of me at a Hockey in Harlem function he was five years old, oh, and now cool. he's the executive director of Ice Hockey in Harlem. Yeah, Matty Garvin. program is all about. Yep. That's cool. Do you know, Sam, their first event they ever had was in Central Park in the Los Angeles Kings the morning after a game, uh, and I was on that team. We played, we had a little scrimmage. There no had practice outside. It was cool, too. Oh, yeah. man. Anything? Well, go ahead. The, no, the, the truth of the matter is, is... Whoever it was, whether it was Wayne, whoever was leading the the uh, movement to go up there and have that practice and get the kids out there, it kind of uh, embarrassed the Rangers organization. And they, from that, got very much involved. There were always players uh, uh, who were representatives of the Rangers involved in the ice hockey events. Um, so it was... Uh, you know, so it's a great move by the L.A. Kings, yeah, right. and then it led to even uh, a bigger movement on the part of the right. Rangers. You know who really was behind that a lot, too, was Pat Hickey. Remember the former yeah. Ranger, Pat Hickey? He yeah. was a big part. I don't know how he was involved, but I think he got to, I think he knew Roy Malarker that was working with the Kings at the time, but that's how it really got going. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, great, great cause, great organization, just yeah. all wonderful all around. Yeah. All right, so let's get out of here. The life and times of the great Sam Rose. Uh-oh. Where were you born? Born in all... Germany, which is not far from Munich, in 1947, uh, my parents were of Polish descent and has left Poland just months before the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939. They traveled to Russia. My uh, parents stayed in Russia through the war. My father was a tailor for the Russian army. And then when the war ended in 45, um, the, uh, the people from Poland and that group 
of Polish Jews uh, who had escaped moved, went to the Western sector in Germany. Uh, you had the displaced persons, whatever they, uh, however they were referred to, but there was a community of people in the Western sector. They were safe. They were able to live there. And um, my father had a brother who had emigrated to America in the early 30s, sponsored our family's uh, coming over from uh, Germany. And we uh, came to New York in 1949 and been here ever since. Wow. Now, did at a very young age, do you dream of doing what you're doing now? When I was a young uh, a youngster growing up in Brooklyn, I dreamt of being a, a, a baseball player for the New York Yankees. All right. Wow. So did you play, did you play baseball? Dream. Played a lot of baseball. Oh, okay. And um, uh, had a nice college uh, high school career at Stuyvesant High School and a nice college career at City College of New York. Wow. Captain the uh, Stuyvesant team in 64, captain the, captain the freshman team at City College in 65, and captain the varsity in 68. Oh, wow. cool. The captain? I didn't know that. Stop what, that. What position did you play, Sam? I was a catcher. Wow. Big hitter? Catcher. Big stick, too, or what? Not a bad stick. One summer, I had a great summer. I hit 440, and that was uh, wow. Wow. that. That was my best That was my best year. Uh, Collegiate-wise, I probably hit in the 290s. Okay. Nice. Wow. Good job, Sam. So when you went to school, did you go to school for broadcasting? When you're a son of Jewish immigrants, they want mom and dad want well, especially mom wants you to be either a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. <laughs> uh, uh, after struggling through a few science courses, I realized I wasn't going to be a doctor. Right. So that was out. Okay. Uh, but you know, being involved in sports, I wanted to do something right. that was sports related. I just I followed that that path and in college when I switched my major to speech and journalism. Wow. Those were the the avenues that I followed that helped me along in my career. Okay. So then after college is done, did you get right into broadcasting? Yes. Uh, While I was in college at City College, um, I went to work at WINS. Uh, which had gone all news in 1964. I went to work for them in 1966, working in the newsroom, and just my my title was desk assistant. And basically, they they would work off the wire services. I would uh, edit some copy, make sure the news people got it, and then they basically knowing that. I was a big sports enthusiast. I would uh, put together the sportscasts that they, uh, or the sports report that they uh, aired at 40, 15 and 45. So that was something while I was in school. That gave me my background. I learned the radio business. I learned how they broadcast. I, wa- I went out with reporters and saw them interview, watched them interview people. Uh, watched what they did, came back, watched what the editors did as far as tape was concerned to put uh, 
clips on the air. And it was uh, a great learning experience. And probably the most important part of it all is that while I was at WINS, I met Jim Gordon. Jim Gordon was my predecessor as the play-by-play man of the New York Rangers on uh, on TV. Sure, he did that. Helped me more than anyone in my career. Him and, him and Bill Chadwick, the big whistle, right? The big whistle. I mean, yeah. Bill was, uh, he was a piece of work, a great referee, <laughs> yeah. uh, lost sight in one of his eyes, went went into broadcasting, and a great personality and a great character. Right, yeah. We had the big brawl in 1980-81, the playoffs against the L.A. Kings. And it's out in L.A., I'll never forget Bill Chadwick's eye. He goes, this is going to set the game back 30 years. <laughs> that was funny. That's one of the classic games ever. Fans still talk about that game. That was good. So now, were you with the Rangers at that point? Um, in 19... 1980-81. I was a fill-in guy at the time. Okay. So I wouldn't have traveled with the team. I started at Madison Square Garden in 1977. Wow. The first uh, thing I... first game I ever broadcast for MSG Network was on the radio. It was a Knicks and Nets game. Uh, I was filling in for Marv Albert, and I finished that season as Marv's backup guy on uh, Knicks basketball. Then the people at Madison Square Garden came to me and said, can you do hockey? And I said, sure, I can do hockey. And did you really think you could? I gave them tapes. I used to cover, I was working, my full-time job was sports director at United Press International Audio Network. United Press was uh, a a service, a news service, similar to Associated Press. They were competitors. Uh, It's now defunct, but uh, UPI uh, would have, you know, an, an audio service. And I worked there for eight years, but I would go out to games, cover it. I'd work my shift, do my sports cast, and then go out and cover games at the Garden, whether it was hockey, basketball, go out to Yankee Stadium, cover the Yankees, uh, the Mets, and interview players, bring back the audio, and then we would send out our audio clips to stations around the country. So it was... uh, it was a great experience. UPI taught me a lot, but uh, while I was at UPI, I became the backup guy after uh, sending tapes to Madison Square Garden. And Jim Gordon, being there at the time, recommended me to fill in for him for a game, right. and I've been there ever since. Wow! So you've got football, baseball, basketball, hockey. Anything else? Uh, there was a time early in the uh, in the advent of ESPN. They went on the air in September of 1979, and I did some football, uh, college football for them at the time. And then they started doing all kinds of different programs. They did uh, I I did um, women's field hockey. I did Australian rules football. Wow. I did some table tennis, which was kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then I, I did a lot of boxing. Uh, even oh, when, I, yes. when I got to Madison Square Garden, 
Uh, I did boxing at the Garden for uh, 11 years until they they went out of the boxing broadcast area business. Sam, what's your favorite sport to call? I'm sure you get asked that a lot. Well, to call, it's, it's hockey because hockey is, as Tom well knows, it's, it's a game of speed, a game of physicality, a game um, where the players are doing unbelievable things on these skinny little blades and how they turn and how they skate at, at that fantastic speed and shoot the puck at close to 100 miles an hour. Just, uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous sport. And I would say that's the most exciting sport to to broadcast. When you get to the playoffs and especially the Stanley Cup Finals, and I was uh, fortunate enough uh, on NHL Radio Network to do Stanley Cup Finals from 1996 through 2008. And then uh, later on came back and did some playoffs for them. They went away for a while, then they came back and got the the contract, and I went back and did a lot of uh, playoff games for them. But um, the nothing like the Stanley Cup playoffs and the Stanley Cup finals. Yeah, the playoffs have got better and better too, right? Every series, it seems like it's a good series. You know, one thing that's always amazed me, like especially when you're doing so many games, I can see where you remember the names of the home team, the team that you're doing. But to know the visitors, like when you're talking, you're doing the middle of the games, like you knew what the other team was. I know you do a lot of homework and studying, but is there a trick to that? Um, no trick, uh, only preparation as you prepare for a game. I prepare for a game and the preparation, I, to me, it started when John Davidson came back from Canada where he was a premier hockey night in Canada broadcaster and analyst comes back to New York and we were partnered up in 1986 And I used to think that I studied and prepared and did my numbers and did my rosters. And then I watched John prepare for a game. And he had satellite dishes everywhere. He had a big satellite dish on his house. He had a smaller Canadian satellite dish in his office. He watched all the games. He watched every game that he could find. And I realized that in order to keep up with him, to know what's going on around the league, I had to get a satellite dish. And I put this big monster satellite dish on top of my house and um, watch games. And that's basically, you know, when you say, is there a trick to it? Basically, it's watching games, other teams' games. If I know that that the Rangers are going to play the LA Kings, or the Tampa Bay Lightning, I'll make sure to watch a couple of their games leading up to that game. Yep. Get an idea of who's playing with whom on the lines, get names and numbers down, um, make sure I I get all the pronunciations that the teams right. are using, and find out as much as we can about the other team. Man, that's cool. I remember, G.D., when I first retired in L.A., I've been doing some radio work with the Kings, and then San Jose hired me their first year to do the color commentating on TV. Dennis Holland started first. He's a great public speaker, but he just couldn't get it down. You know, so I think I did about 70 games. 
And I called JD a couple of times to lean on him for advice. And I remember him saying to me, he says, Tom, listen, I'm proud of myself as a player, but if I look back, I wish I had got more into my career. I do not want to make that mistake again. So in this broadcasting career, I'm going to be the best possible. I will be totally prepared. Just the stuff you're talking about, taking notes, going to pregame skates and talking to the coaches and everything. Yeah, he was really, there's no secret why he's become successful after. Hard think work. Just hard work. Yeah. Just hard, pure hard work. Yeah, totally. But mm-hmm. he, he set the standard. Yeah. Every every network that went into uh, broadcasting the NHL, that uh, whether it was ESPN, ABC, NBC, CBS, hired John Davidson. He, he set the standard for color commentators in hockey. So when you guys work a deal, you use JD as an example, does it click right away or does it get better and better over time that like you get to learn each other more and more? I think for me, I, I've been I've been tremendously lucky. In my years at Madison Square Garden, my first two years, I worked with Phil Esposito and Phil was just fun. Yeah, he was yeah. fun to work with. Didn't do didn't do much homework. <laughs> He didn't have to, right? When his personality but, didn't have but to. But he knew the game. The thing that I loved about Phil is once the game started, he was as good as anyone because he just knew why a play happened, what a player had done to create a scoring chance, what what a player had done to uh, make a mistake and screw up what had happened. He He really knew the game, didn't know the players. I mean, if he said it once, he said it 20 times. Sam, where'd this guy come from? <laughs> and he's so, that, that's a great example. He's so honest about it, too. He didn't try to hide it. He just said, oh, probably, yeah, I don't know this guy. Oh, yeah. He yeah. he still does it uh, when yeah. he does the Tampa Bay Lightning games today. Um, so I worked with Phil for two years. Then Phil became general manager of the Rangers. And traded I, Tom. I got him a good job. <laughs> and, yeah. And then J.D. came from Canada, 1986, and we were together for 20 years. And then Joe Micheletti stepped in when John left, and I've been with Joe. We'll be go- starting our 18th year. This wow. wow. And cool. Joe and I got to know each other. I, I knew of him as a player. I watched him in his career in St. Louis. I uh, knew him as an assistant coach with the Blues when he worked with Brian Sutter. And then uh, when uh, Fox got the NHL contract in 1995, the two lead broadcast teams were Mike Emmerich and John Davidson, Sam Rosen, and Joe Micheletti. So Joe and I worked together for five years with Fox. So he came to New York, got the Islander gig, and then when J.D. left, they brought him over from Islanders hockey to Rangers hockey. We have a funny little Phil story. Uh, we had Phil on we, our other show we did with Ron Greshner and Larry Melnick and James Patrick. We had Phil come on. And he and before the show started, he says, Tommy, can I swear? I said, well, Phil, you can drop a couple of F-bombs, but you know, like somewhat PG. So he must have dropped the F-bomb 200 times. So he got to the <laughs> point one time where I said to him, I said, Phil, you're setting a record. Didn't stop him. Man. Like, in fact, it made it worse because now all the fans were keeping track of how many F-bombs he dropped. We got into talking about his trades that he made, you know, called Trader Phil. And obviously he traded me out to Los Angeles. And we tried to talk about some of the rationale for his trades. He said, the guys that I liked a lot, when I had to trade him, I, I traded him close by. Like Don Maloney, I traded to Hartford. The guys I didn't like so much, I traded him as far, far away as possible. I'm going, Phil, you traded me to LA. I thought we were fun. It's like, 
But then, you know, Phil, he just, he just, there's no filter, right? He's no, not at all. I mean, he just uh, let, I mean, I'll listen to him on satellite radio when I'll, I'll be yeah. in the car listening to uh, the lightning game. He and Dave Mishkin work together and they will be calling the game. And all of a sudden you go, what the hell did he do that for? Turn <laughs> it out there. He just, yeah, you're right. No, filter, oh, I holding him he, back. He's very much like Phil Rizzuto was on the Yankee broadcast, just talking about whatever comes to his mind, which is awesome. Other than yourself, obviously, you got confidence in yourself. Who do you think is the best? I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. But right now, well, let me just give you all time. Who's the best broadcaster all time? Oh, boy. How about the old Dodgers guy, uh, Vince Scully? Vince Scully. Oh, you mean yep. in, in all of sports? Yeah, all of sports. Yeah. Yeah, I think you'd have to rate uh, Vin Scully the best, well, truly the best baseball guy. I think you have to separate uh, the sports. Okay. Uh, you know, when you look at the guys that have done football, Pat Summerall, you know, for so many years, Pat Summerall was the voice of football with John Madden. Yeah, I mean, they were the, the best team out there. Basketball. Uh, Marv Albert was as good as it gets in basketball, but Mike Green now is tremendous. Does right. a great, great job. And we have him with the Knicks, but he also, he's the voice of the NBA on ESPN and the, uh, the NBA finals in, in hockey. There've been so many outstanding guys. Uh, you know, I, the Foster Hewitts and the Danny Gallivans, I didn't, grow up listening to them. I didn't hear them. They're Canadian broadcasters, but they, they set the standards and that's why you, you have a, a, an award named after Foster Hewitt uh, for the, the top broadcaster each year. But I think the teams as broadcasting has improved um, as, as the broadcasting of the games has improved the quality of, of the play-by-play and color analysts has improved. So yeah. you look around the league and uh, you can name 10, 15 guys. Right now, Teddy Albert is is yeah. the lead voice of hockey, does a tremendous job. I mean, the genes are there. Marv did a great job in hockey and basketball, and Teddy has followed in his footsteps doing a great job. But, uh, you know, down through the years, uh, as you, you look around, Pat Foley in Chicago, yeah, he's a great voice. A unique style was the man in Pittsburgh, Mike Lang. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. With, uh, that's true. With all his sayings, oh, 
you know, oh, chop my legs, crack, <laughs> scratch my back with a chainsaw. Yeah, he's uh, you know, And I don't want to forget some of you know uh, some of the great great voices in L.A. Bob Miller, yes, Hall of Fame broadcaster. Uh, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. I don't want to forget Mike Hemrick, of course, uh, probably set the standard. Uh, he became he was he had a unique style and. One of those play-by-play uh, -play -play approaches that you couldn't right. couldn't copy, and what he had was his great recall that uh, he great memory, great stories that he would weave into his broadcast. Um, just a, a great student of the game, and that always came out in his broadcast. You know what you two have in common too is you both have a real passion for the game, and I think it really comes out when you're on the broadcast. Right, it's not phony. Like you are no. really into the New York Rangers when he, whatever team he was doing, he was totally passionate about the game. I think that's a big part of it. You can't fake that too, right? That's the real deal. You know, I I didn't play the game, Tom, and um, we didn't have much ice in Brooklyn going up, growing up. Um, but I went to the games every Sunday. I got on the subway, traveled to Madison Square Garden on Eighth Avenue and Fiftieth Street, the old garden, and at 4.30, they'd open the doors, and we'd run in and try to get the best seats we could get uh, in the building. But the love of the game, and, and you know this, fans know this, when you're at the arena, there's nothing like it. Well, the garden's unbelievable. Right? It's incredible, yeah. And, cool. and that has stayed with me all the years. The, the Again, when I mentioned earlier, the intensity of the sport. Um all the aspects, the speed, the shooting, the hitting, um, there's nothing like it. And I, I think that one of the things that I try to transmit to the fans is the love I have for the game and the appreciation I have for the players who play it. Yeah, and it shows. It does show. Oh, yeah. yeah, it really does. Yeah, no question. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Good and bad. Uh-oh. What's the – can you tell me hey, – I Another name just popped into my head. I don't want to forget him. Jiggs McDonald. Oh, oh yeah. Jiggs. Great guy, great boys, great broadcaster. Yeah, he was good. He's a good man, too. Yeah, I see yeah. him around. He's got a good personality. All right. Worst thing that's ever happened to you on air? You're a mistake or something else. Something you look back at. Oh, all right. The, I would say it was early. I may have been one of my early broadcasts on radio, filling in for Marv Albert. Sal... Messina was the color analyst. Red light. It was his nickname. He was a, a goalie back in the 60s, played for the Long Island Ducks, and was the emergency goalie for the Rangers. He would sit up in the stands, and if somebody, if the number one goalie, who was Jacques Plot at the time, got hurt, he would uh, be forced into action. Sal Messina, great guy, is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, was the analyst on radio, and I, I'm filling in for Marv Albert, and I come down to the broadcast booth, and there's a table there, and I'm carrying my coffee. You know, drink coffee, keep warm, whatever. Um, so I sit down, and he looks at me, and he says, you're going to drink that coffee uh, while you're doing the game? I said, yeah, no, no problem. I'll just put it over here. And So we sit down, and... The Rangers are playing the Atlanta Flames, and the game is going on. There's some heavy hitting, 
Uh, Willie Plett was on that. It's a big hitting going on. And all of a sudden, there's a, a big play in front. And I jump up on the radio. I'm calling. Yeah, I jump up because I'm excited about this play. And what happens? The coffee goes all over everything. goes over my papers, over Sal's papers. And the best thing of it all was Sal quietly looks at me. But on the air, he says, have an accident, Sam? <laughs> so... Uh, uh, let's coffee in the booth. There you go. Learn your lesson. All right. So now let's go the other way. What's one of the most proud moments that you've had? Are there something that you said on air or something that happened to you? Well, I mean, it, it has to be the Stanley Cup yeah. final and the championship in 1994. I mean, that was, um, it was one of the most exciting moments I've ever had. And, what came out as the call, you know, people ask, do you rehearse the call? Do you, you think about what you're going to say? You always think about what you're going to say, but you never want to lose the moment, yeah, yeah. the moment that it happens. And what happened in 1994, Rangers are up 3-2. to two. Uh, Vancouver had come back with a goal in the third period. It's a 3-2 game, tense moments that, Clock is winding down. The people have been on their feet at the garden all game long. And now they're down under two minutes. And the Rangers clear the puck out. And it's going the length of the ice. And it's slowing down. And Vancouver's defenseman, Jeff Brown, slows down just enough. So they call it an icing. Yeah, I remember. Now they bring it back. Have another face-off. All right. So again, the tension is building. Face-off, Rangers control it, clear the puck out even slower this time. And Vancouver's even slower going back. And Kevin Collins is the linesman, gives them an icing. And finally, they set up, they put a, a few uh, tenths of a second back on the clock. And it's 1.6, I believe, was on the clock. You know in your heart that, and in your head, your head is telling you that nothing could happen in 1.6 seconds. Yeah. But if anything could happen, it's going to happen to the Rangers. Yeah. Because it's happened for 53 years. Now the puck is dropped. Messier is taking the face off. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, it was uh, McTavish yeah. taking yep. the face off. He wins the draw. Everybody's jumping up and down. And finally... Because of the stoppages, what came to my head was the waiting is over. Oh, oh, wow. And the New York Rangers are the Stanley Cup champions, and this one will last a lifetime. And what I meant by that was basically it's it's my lifetime. This is Nothing will get better than this. Even if the Rangers went on and won two or three more, this moment would last a lifetime. That's cool. It has. Yeah, that's cool. It's funny, like, listening to your voice right now, I can hear that. Like, I've watched that so many times. It'll get goosebumps. Yeah, it's true. It's, yeah. yeah, very true. Very true. Um, Hall of Fame. You got inducted already, correct? Uh, 2016, uh, I was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, and it's, um, it's such an honor uh, when you're there, and you walk around, and your family is there. That, that That's the best thing, that you get to share this with your family, your, your 
my two boys, uh, their kids, uh, my my brother was there, his family was there, and close friends. You're able to share it with the people that you love the most that know how how much you put into it, and then uh, it's it's being thankful to your fellow broadcasters and uh, the your colleagues in the business in the hockey world who are saying we appreciate what you've done and it was uh it's 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 really an emotional time uh and to see the plaque on display um that's you know it's awesome yeah it really it it, it brings shivers um uh it tingles the arm the arms tingle the nerves you feel it uh but it's you realize how special it is and i can only say thank you to everybody who helped me get there who who, uh, who did the introduction for you um actually it was uh we at the uh the broadcasters and the writers are honored at a luncheon the morning uh, or the afternoon of the Hall of Fame induction for players and um, and other executives and people who are uh, the founders of the league, so to speak. But they, they are honored at the big uh, presentation at night. The broadcasters and writers are uh, honored in the afternoon. Chuck Tayton, the president of the uh, NHL Broadcasters Association, longtime broadcaster for the Hartford Whalers and the uh, uh, Carolina Hurricanes, did the introduction for me. Well, if you had your choice, who would it have been, though, if you could have picked? Ron Davidson. Yeah. Ah, wow. I love the way you said that so quick, too. Yeah, John, no, you know, as I mentioned before, Tom, he, he meant so much to me. We're still close friends. Uh, but uh, he helped me understand what it took yeah. to be uh, a, a broadcaster. And he gave, having been a player, through him, I was able to appreciate all the things that he went through as a player, yeah. the injuries that he suffered through, uh, coming close to winning the Stanley Cup in 1979, getting to the Stanley Cup final. Um it was uh, that was a, a really special relationship, and it lasted for twenty years, and we had some great times. So JD, when I first came into that, so I came in eighty eighty one. They'd gone to the finals in seventy nine, and JD had that great series, as you know. And so everybody, like I remember looking up to JD so much, like he's this iconic person. You know, Dugay was there, Gresher, and all those other guys. Phil's was Phil was still playing, but something about JD, he had that presence about him, right? You know, and how well he played. So I've told it. Tom gets kicked out of the story. First game I played, uh, we're up in Boston, first regular season game, and I was so nervous, right? You dreamed, right? You had done the same kind of stuff. You dreamed all your life to get in the National Hockey League, and you're playing, and it's it's Boston Garden. You're one of the original 16. Bobby Orr played here and all this kind of stuff. So I was so nervous. Went to get the puck to shoot around the back of my net. I missed. I hit JD right in the back of the leg. Goes in our net, and I scored <laughs> JD. My first game in the NHL. He looks at me with a glare through the mask, and it was that was the worst part about it to me. The look that JD did, he had the right to look at me any way he wanted to because I just shot the puck around net. 
And uh, I'll never forget, he looked at me like, oh, God, I want to crawl. And then I have to go back to the bench. And that's not a coachable moment, right? There's no, like, what are you doing? So nobody's talking to me. And I just think to myself, I, after the game, shower, got the bus, I just think JD's looking at me like, he wants to kill me. That was the worst feeling about it. We got, we got over that. So, But you guys all mentioned how he was kind of like a big brother to all you guys, too. I don't know if that helped yeah, Sam. He, you got Yeah, he was something. I mean, he was a real leader as a person. To what had nothing to do with hockey, right, Chan? Yeah. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the guys uh, hung together a lot, did a lot of things together, and and he was one of those guys. He was a, an outgoing guy, great personality, and uh, and really, I think what what gets lost sometimes, some of it because of his size, some of it because the injuries that set in at that time, but uh, he was a really good athlete. He yeah. played on our MSG softball team. And he could hit the ball a mile. Well, was that I, he, well, he he could really blast it. Couldn't run because his knees were shot, but he could hit the ball a mile. Back in those days, too, he had practice. Like, you weren't allowed to shoot pucks high. Well, you could shoot pucks high in top corner, but you didn't shoot pucks high on JD because, you know, he's so well-respected and everything. If you ever did, JD would take his catching glove off and put it on the end of his stick. So the next time he went down to shoot, he's standing there in the net with the stick up there with the catching glove. He just... <laughs> He just, yeah, you're right, Sam. It, it, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it was with him. Like he, everywhere you went, you'd go into a bar or restaurant, there'd be a crowd of people over there, and some guys holding court. There's JD telling little stories. Yeah. Sam, who who were some of your other favorite players through the years? Uh, down through the, uh, you know what? We had so many outstanding players come through. I mean, that's that's one of the fortunate things about number one being in New York because it was. If you came to New York, you got you got attention. Yeah. There was people around you, uh, whether it was off the ice with the nightlife or whether it was on the ice, uh, you know, at Madison Square Garden. But uh, down through the years, I want to go through some of the years. I love the the Swedes that came. Yeah. We had uh, Thomas Sandstrom, Jan Eriksson, uh, just terrific guy. Yeah. Roger Nielsen, as as a coach, was a great guy that came in. But player-wise, yeah, it it really built up. You know, you go back to some of the the characters in the seventies. Tom uh, mentioned Ron Dugay. Ron Dugay came with uh, with Murdoch, and uh, Donnie Murdoch was an exciting player. The two of them, Murdoch and and Dugay, I mean, flying down the ice, they could shoot it, they could score. They brought attention uh, to the Rangers. Um, I'm trying to, I don't want to forget people. Tom Laidlaw. Not all came to the Rangers for a couple of years. And then later on, we'd get guys toward the end of their careers. Marcel Dion came to the Rangers, Hall of Fame player. Um, Mike Gartner came to the Rangers, was traded in 94. Otherwise, he might have been on a on a Stanley Cup team with the, with the Rangers. Homegrown. We had Brian Leach, yeah. a homegrown ranger. Craig Patrick, his last draft, uh, he chose Brian Leach, and Brian Leach became a Hall of Famer, played over 16 years with the Rangers. Fabulous, fabulous guy. Mike Richter in goal. That, that championship team, Adam Graves, no one better than Adam Graves as a person and played as hard as he could and protected his players. And then Mark Messier, as good as it gets, 
then I'd want to go back now. I want to backtrack and say I I was able to watch growing up uh, a I, I was more than growing up. I was growing teenager and beyond. But Rod Gilbert and Jean Rattel and those players getting to know Rod after he finished his playing career. What a great, great person. He stayed in New York and became the other number seven. There was Mickey Mantle. There was Rod Gilbert. So uh, there were always great players, great personalities. Eric Lindros came to the New York Rangers. That was a plus. Wayne Gretzky ended his career as a New York Ranger. For three years, we would sit on the plane. Wayne was a terrible flyer. Yep, He was a white knuckler. I mean, he hated flying. And we would get up in the air, and once we leveled off, after he let go of the uh, armrest, he would go into the cockpit and sit with the yeah. with the pilot because it eased his uh, stress and pressure of flying. But there was another guy, you know, Wayne. Wayne came to the Rangers in his first year. Uh, he he had ninety seven points. I mean, it was terrific. But then Mark left, and. Um, it was the the last two years were difficult, but having the to me the greatest player of all time in a Rangers uniform doesn't get any better than that. You talk about Mesa, <laughs> yeah, delivering the Stanley Cup. Yeah, yeah. And for me, it's some of those lesser known guys too, like uh, like Tom Laidlaw, you want Patrick, uh, Steve Richmond, those kind of guys. You know, still great players, but they, for me, it, like be, being close to those guys in the locker room, they are the name that comes to mind. Yeah. You know what's funny too? We had a, we did a show with uh, Ken Hitchcock, and one of the things he started talking about the locker room. Yep, and it brought back memories. I started getting goosebumps, you know, because when you had those good guys like you're talking about, not just good players, but good guys in the locker room. One of the best. This is uh, I don't know, Phil like me tell the story now, but I told it. Uh, so I my first year in the league, I'm sitting beside Anders Hedberg in the locker room at MSG, and Phil sitting across the room from us. And Phil, as you know, totally old school. So uh, Anders' his wife was giving birth. So after the first period, I think it was Anders was getting undressed to go to the hospital. Well, Phil didn't like that idea. Phil thought that, but you know, again, you know, Phil, it's old school. He's got a <laughs> great man. But to him, he thought, well, you're not going to be doing the baby, do, doing any for you. You're not getting the baby out. You're sitting there. So he thought he should say it. He was telling Anders right in front of everybody in the locker room. And I'm sitting there myself. I'm thinking, oh, let me get this straight. I'm my first year in the NHL. Here's Anders Hedberg right beside me. Phil Esposito, one of the legends of the game, is just ripping into him. Both me and going. Uh, so there was a lot of great, a lot of great. Yeah, you're right. There's so many good guys, too. And people ask me all the time, is there anybody you really didn't like that you played with? I mean, maybe there'd be a couple of guys you'd look to that you didn't get along with as much as others. But, yeah, we were like, I thought we just, maybe it's the hockey world, too, with the great people in the game. So, Oh, absolutely. And you know what surprises people when I tell them about certain players is how they were as a player, tough guys, fighters, yeah. and off the ice, the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet and want to be with one of the guys i always tell talk about is knuckles nyland yeah yeah I mean, chris nyland as tough as they come would fight anybody mean played a, a use this stick and off the ice one of the, he was one of the yeah. big uh uh charity people he yeah. was involved with the alan brown foundation to cure paralysis he was involved with ice hockey in harlem one of the best guys, as far as charities was concerned, 
off the ice and people say, really? He, he was out there. Yeah. Same, same with Nicky Fatio, right? One of the greatest all-time ever. What a, what a great story. People talk about him, and I say, Nicky Fatio uh, is is one of the great sports stories of New York. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Up on Staten Island, and as I mentioned, there were, weren't many rinks around the city, uh, Tommy, for, for young guys to go skate and become hockey players. Uh, the Mullins certainly yeah. were a great story. But Nick Fatio coming out of Staten Island, a fan favorite. And to me, one of the stories I like to tell is when Herb Brooks was coach in the early 80s. I was going to go there myself. Yeah, I Herb, the strong personality that he was. Uh, he and I did a Rangers show, a weekly show together. And um, one night we're sitting uh, there and I, I, I brought up Nick Fatio's name. I said, boy, Nick Fatio is playing very well. And Herb goes, oh, don't bring up Nick Fatio. He scored two goals the other night. Now he thinks he's John Bellowell. I need him to go out and fight. And Herbie loved Nicky, too. And it's odd because he really wasn't one of Herbie's guys. Like, you know, Mark Pavlidge and Mark McClanahan, those kind of guys. But Herb just loved having him around because of his heart and the his toughness and everything. But he did uh, everything. And, you know, and what I also like to t- talk tell about Nicky is that when he went when he left New York, went to, to San Jose, went to work uh, for the Sharks, was a coach in Kentucky. Yeah. And he would send up plays to the team up in San Jose. <laughs> he really wanted to be yeah. good at what he did, and he, he worked very hard. Nicky was a terrific guy and gave it his all. Yeah. So Herb, uh, we, Herb had this thing, especially at Madison Square Garden, with Nicky in front of the New York fans. We would pass up to, her, to Nicky at the red line, and he would want to circle back into our zone, get the speed going, the crowds roaring, and everything. Here's Nick Fatio. Uh, but it drove Herbie nuts because he wanted Nicky to go straight ahead, you know, get the puck in, dump it, go hit, fight, all those things you talked about. So he would say, he would say to us, I remember one time Dave Maloney and I were going out the ice. He says, Don't pass it to Nicky because he's going to come back in our zone. So I go back in the ice and I'm a younger player. I says, Dave, what are we going to do if Nicky's open? We got to pass to him. He says, Yeah, we're passing to him. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we did it on purpose, like where we intentionally got Nicky the puck. So he would circle back and Herb is losing his mind on the bench. <laughs> Yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, well, Sam, you know, the one of the things that I, I as a person and as uh, your your profession, I think you know, I don't want to put you in the grave yet. You've got a long way to go. But when it's all said and done for you, you're going to look back at your life and you're going to say, man, I got a lot out of this life. Like, both on a personal basis with your family, with your career, the way you treat people. Like that, to me, that's a huge thing when you look back and go, man, I did, I did it the right way, right? You know, um, when people talk about living the dream and, uh, enjoying what they do i don't think there's anybody who could enjoy doing what they do more than me because i mean who has it better than me i've been a i've been able to work in the sports field uh, i mentioned upi earlier when i worked uh at upi in the uh early 70s and right through the late 70s i got to go to the 1976 olympics uh, in Montreal in the Summer Olympics. I got to go to Lake Placid and cover the 1980 Olympics. Right. Um, I got to cover, you know, working on NHL radio. I was able to broadcast uh, Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. Uh, whether All events I co- for UPI, I covered the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, the U.S. Open tennis and golf. I mean, uh, 
I, I've been able to cover sporting events that most people don't don't get to to be at or can only watch on TV. And I've been lucky enough to be there firsthand. And then uh, working in hockey as long as I have, uh, the years I worked with Fox football, I, I put in 20 years with Fox football, and I've got to see some of the greatest athletes in the world. What I love about hockey on a daily basis is the people in it. You know it, Tommy. You, you were one of them, but everybody's got a story. How they made it to the top. You're at the top of of your profession. You're in the National Hockey League. You're in the NFL, whatever it is. Everybody's got a story on how they got there. And some of them are amazing. The ones that have always amazed me every day are the kids that come from Europe and kids, you know, barely speak English. Uh, the one I like to tell lately is Kapo Kako who, from Finland. Rangers, number two draft pick. They bring him in. He's 19 years old, barely speaks English, and he's walking around every city we go to. Well, he goes to Las Vegas. Talk about like a different world. These are the stories of of players that come from different countries, and even in whether it's Canada or, or even homegrown in the U.S., they have great stories. And it's great to learn about them. I'm always excited when new players come in, and I've been I've been fortunate to meet great the the greatest players of the game in football, the greatest players of the game in all the sports. When I was a reporter, and when and as a play by play guy, you know, it's uh, a last more of a comment for you. Every time I see Sam now, I don't see him that often. When I see him, it's always the same question I have for him: Sam, are you going to do this forever? He looks at me with the same smile all the time. He says, yes, Tommy. I go, with <laughs> We had one uh, executive producer, GM of, of the network, and um, he said to me, Sam, the job is yours as long as you want it. There you go. And I said, I'll take you up on that. Well, Sam, thank you very much. I know you got a lot going on. You're a busy man. You're going up to some baseball practices today with your grandson. Good job. You're yeah. a good father. I, uh, you know, again, total honor to have you on. Total honor to call you my friend. Uh, you should be very proud of yourself, and uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. With me. The feeling is mutual, Tommy. You know that. All right, brother. Good job. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Sam. Well, how how often is it, Tom, where a, you have someone on who a player or a fan, no one has a bad word to say about that person? At all. And that, I don't think anyone in the world has anything bad to say about about Sam Rose. He was awesome. Well, as great as he is at his job, it really is. Like people say this sometimes, but it's really the truth. With Sam, if you ever get to meet him, like he's a better person than he was, and he's a fantastic his job. It's just that uh, he's so nice to everybody. Uh, you know, he remembers people from the past. Yep. And it makes he's one of those guys you make you feel good when you're around Sam too. So that was, that was absolutely like I said, we we spent some time at the Hawk and Harlem dinner, and he was he was great. He's just a, just a kind human being. And he really appreciates what he has, and that's awesome. Yeah, he, exactly. He's a guy that loves his life. Like, he yep. genuinely loves his life. Like I said, we talked about on the show, I always ask him, you got to do it forever. And just get the big red block. Yeah, why not? I mean, his voice is iconic. Everyone, and a Ranger fan, you know, who's listening knows that call. This one will last a lifetime. Like, we talked about it. He said it on, on, our, on the show. I got goosebumps. Yeah. I was like, I felt like I was in the moment. You know what I was really interested to? The person the most, uh, he learned the most from that really yep. made a difference in his career and his life. So, yep. I'll enjoy another great episode. Yes. Thank you, sirs. 
All right, grasshoppers, thank you for listening. We had a fantastic show. We'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.